Hello. Thank you for tuning in. You are listening to the Science at Nanoscale podcast and I'm your host Jayendran Ayer. This series will bring you experts from topics relevant to nanoscience like catalysis, biocatalysis, electrochemistry, nanotechnology, etc. These will be informal discussions on recent developments in these fields which I suspect we hardly get to listen to except if you end up in seminars or conferences. We aim to learn minute observations from their works and gain access to their thought process. You can follow us on Twitter and help us reach out to those interested in such conversations. We hope you enjoy today's conversation. This episode we will be talking to Dr. Shan T about his recent work on studying electrode electrolyte interface using constant potential model which is published in the journal of chemical physics in general constant charge models are popularly used for such studies and we will discuss with shern on how constant potential models provide better understanding on the dynamics at the interface so shern is currently a lecturer at griffith university and has a rich expertise in molecular dynamics simulations so a warm welcome shern and would you like to give a brief about yourself and your previous work hi yeah so um uh, my name is shern um hi everyone who's listening yeah so i am a lecturer at uh, griffith university and my my work has been pretty much on all kinds of you know interesting and diverse and unusual molecular dynamics so um i got my phd doing sort of coarse grain modeling of a uh, dna and then when i went to uh, brisbane in 2019 i actually got started on this constant potential um problem basically um almost accidentally right i found out that the constant potential code um that uh that one of my colleagues was working on at that time was just really slow and seemed to be really inflexible and i thought oh i'm going to try and make it faster and uh, here i am uh, four years later and one of the things that i can say is that it actually is faster so yes that's a good that's a good thing to accomplish <laughs> before we actually get into the constant potential method i would like to get some information on the molecular dynamic simulations that you do or to study these electrode electrolyte interface what info do you actually investigate in these interfaces using your simulations right so um the main thing that we want to get is actually how a how an electrolyte behaves near the interface and uh, some of the properties that we um um sort of investigate include firstly the structural properties so things like if you have a certain amount of potential at the interface what's the concentration of your uh positive or negative ions near the surface or at a bit of a distance away and then we also want to look at the dynamics near the interface because if you imagine an electrolyte that's sort of moving past an electrode um those electric forces should have some effect on the friction that the electrolyte feels near the electrode and also dynamics things being like how long it takes the interface uh, or the double layer to charge up or to discharge and then if we are um if we are very lucky then we can go on to the next step which is to sort of simulate also really different kinds of interfaces so for example instead of a flat electrode we might simulate electrodes which are um rough or rugged or um sort of curved or you know even have pockets or pores on the nanoscale um and that's something that's really interesting to try and look at um in the age of nanotechnology so yes hmm. so when you observe a certain dynamics from your simulations uh, 
be it the ionic distribution that you have close to the interface. So how do you validate if those dynamics are realistic in nature? Yeah, this is one of the biggest questions actually in the field of constant potential molecular dynamics, because ordinarily we would say you have to validate these things against experiments, but this is an area where the experiments themselves um, can be a bit tricky to interpret because um, an electrode is almost never like completely atomically smooth. Um, once you get down to the atom level, there are going to be little imperfections here and there. And it's also very difficult to disentangle what we see in the experiments from some of the quantum effects um, that, we would, um, that we would expect. So to validate these um, um, studies, I think what we, are, what we are looking at in the quantum potential field at the moment is still sort of more qualitative, meaning to say, if you compare two different kinds of electrolytes, they should give you um, results that trend in the, in the correct direction. Or if you compare a more concentrated to a more dilute electrolyte, um, you know, you should see um, results that have the same trend as the um, experiments. Um, this is an area of very, very active research, especially with the recent advances in machine learning uh, potential. That's a, that's a nut that we hope to crack in the next sort of two to five years um, to get to a point where we can actually, um, you know, have uh, results that are validated by um, simulations. We're very close. There is a very recent paper that has looked at sort of salt water on metals and gotten a, um, a capacitance for that interface that's very close to what we see in experiments. Yeah, so we're almost there. So when we talk about electric double layer, they're in a nanometer range, very uh, close to the interface. So how studying ionic distribution at that small volume would be very much helpful in understanding the overall electrode performance as well? Yeah, so um, there are, I mean, with, with molecular dynamics, of course, one of the limitations is that our length scale is very small, but by that same token, um, there are there are things that happen at a very small level that are very important to understanding um, the performance of a um, uh, you know performance of an electrode. And I'll give you a very simple example which is that if you try and um, if you try and model, let's say, a solution of two different kinds of salts. Let's say if you model a lithium salt, um, you know, in water and a sodium salt in water, um, you can always describe it as oh they've got two different um, you know, um, permittivities or two different epsilons, and then you can make a continuum model of that, and that's fine. But then if you go down right to the electrode, what you'll find is that a lithium ion has a very small ionic radius. It can sit quite easily in some gaps. A sodium ion is bigger. There are gaps that it might not sit in as well. Um, and a chloride ion is even bigger than either of those. So it's not going to um, really adsorb to the surface um, very, you know, in a very sticky manner compared to what we see in some constant potential simulations for lithium or for sodium ions. So those are the kinds of things where if you treat your electrolyte as just sort of a continuum, um, you know, the effects are, you know, there are some surface effects that you would miss out. And if you are in the regime where you really need to consider the molecular size impacts, then it would make sense to look at molecular dynamics or constant potential molecular dynamics specifically. Could you please take us through the the entire constant potential method in general, why would we need this method for understanding the, uh, the electrode itself? Yeah, okay. So in, in a very short sentence, like you need constant potential methods if you are investigating dynamics, 
if you are investigating um, concentrate um, solutions of high ionic strength, um, if you are investigating electrodes that are curved or that are sort of nanostructured, um, essentially those are the main regions in which you need that. And to understand why, it helps to think all the way back to sort of the physics of um, a conductive surface, which is that if you remember back to your, your first or second year electromagnetism lectures that you didn't you know, quite want to remember, you'll know that um, one of the ways we often solve for a system is let's say you've got a point charge on top of a on top of a flat conductive surface, right? And you may remember from second from second year electrodynamics that the way that you solve that is to say, well, you pretend that there's an image charge underneath the surface, and that generates the correct electric field, um, you know, that corresponds to that point charge. And if as if you can imagine um, an electrolyte with charges that are moving around all the time. Um, and you imagine a flat conductor, you also imagine there are image charges underneath that conductor that are moving around all the time. And that's fine if you have a flat electrode surface. And that's also fine if you have not much, uh, if you have a fairly low ionic strength, because those charges, even though they move around, their effect is not going to be very large. And you can sort of cancel them out and, and do, for example, a mean field theory, you can say, oh, you know, on average, that charge is such and such an amount, and you can pretend that it just stays there. But in the circumstances that I mentioned, you have to go to what we call a quantum potential method. So firstly, if you're interested in dynamics, um, what happens is that if you have a, um, just to step back, if you have a constant charge, what that means is that if I want a positively charged electrode, I'll take all the atoms on the surface of the electrode and pretend, and basically say, look, I'm going to put plus 0.1 electron on each electrode particle, let's say, and then minus 0.1 on the opposite electrode. And those charges are going to be the same throughout the whole simulation. And then you basically say, yep, that's my charged up electrode. But you can see that with the dynamics, you don't actually know how long it takes for that so-called capacitor to charge up. It could take one nanosecond um, to reach that final state, or it could take 100 nanoseconds. And with a constant potential approach, you actually turn on the potential. The charge actually dynamically accumulates from its initial value of zero to whatever final value you want it to have. And the second thing, um, the second case in which you need constant potential methods is when you have a solution of a high ionic strength. Because when that happens, you have enough ions near your electrode surface that you can't treat them in the mean field approximation anymore. Your ions actually feel it when their image charge moves around. And that's a different situation from when you have a constant charge. So as an example, um, if you think about a, um, a sodium ion near a conductive surface, a sodium ion is going to have enough charge that when it comes near to sort of a negatively charged enough surface, let's say, the negative charge that's induced on that surface is strong enough to hold it there and even to partially desolvate it. So that's something that we see in a constant potential simulation that you wouldn't see in a constant charge simulation. And lastly, sort of when you have a nanostructure, then you can't actually say, oh, I'm going to have a flat electrode surface and an image charge underneath it because there's no flat surface. It's, you know, it's nano, it has an actual nano curvature. So it's very complicated to calculate where the image charges should be. And it's more simple to that at that point to actually use the constant potential equations to put the correct amount of charge on each electrode atom and then get your dynamics that way.
so your argument basically is in realistic terms the electrode is set to a constant potential rather than to a constant charge with the models that people generally use is constant charge models to simulate uh, the dynamics at the interface so how does the results in constant charge methods differ from constant potential methods yes so um firstly i would say um quite a few studies including um some of my own simulation results have shown that if you if you don't have a very high potential difference then the results are actually very similar and again that makes sense because if you've got um you know if if the induced charge on the surface isn't very large then it actually does not have a very big effect whether you apply it using a constant charge or a constant potential but when you've got a large potential difference and your surfaces are charged up then it does make a difference to to the results and the main difference that it makes is that when you have a constant potential method the charges on the electrode surface actually change over time and they're correlated with the electrolyte charges that are near the electrode so in a sense if you have a positive ion that comes near the electrode in the constant potential method you are going to get some negative charge that's induced on the nearby atoms whereas in the constant charge method you don't have that so for example if you've got a positive ion that comes near the electrode it will diffuse parallel to the electrode quite a bit more slowly it may absorb heat from the electrode if you've got a thermostatic layer underneath it you may have for example situations where if you um, one of the most famous studies um, a couple of years ago was using a nanostructured electrode where they showed that if you put constant charge on every single atom in the electrode turn on and turn that on and um, run your ionic liquid simulation your ionic liquid actually heats up something like 10000 degrees kelvin or so and obviously that's not something that's very realistic whereas when you when you turn on the potential across a nanoporous um electrode and turn it up even to 5 volts or 10 volts you do get some amount of heating but it'll only be in the range of tens to hundreds of kelvins which is a slightly more you know it's a much more physically realistic value and the reason for that is that um with the constant charge method you're actually putting charges on the electrode atoms without really without them being responsive to the electrolyte configuration and if you are putting in the constant potential method the charge on the electrode atoms actually responds to what the charge and the electrolyte atoms are so there is a time scale of response there where your electrode won't charge up instantaneously but it will take on a slowly changing value of charge until it reaches the correct potential difference and the electrolyte reaches the same potential difference with it yeah yes so how large is that potential difference that you're talking about if if i want to see a difference in the two methods So for a flat electrode which is kind of where you can get away with constant charges people have seen i think if and and also it depends on the electrolyte because um if you've got a let me just think this through if you have a fairly polar electrolyte so water for example it's got a very high relative permittivity so an epsilon of about 78 which means that it shields the effects of an ion right so two ions in water don't actually feel each other all that much even when they're close together because the the water molecules surround each other surround the ions and sort of shield them from each other and the same principle applies to electrodes as well so in water at the electrode if you're looking at something like 
zero or one or two volts. Um, you may not see a large difference in what we call the structure. So if you take a density profile or if you take a G of R near the electrode, you may not see that much of a difference between zero to two volts. And then after two volts, you might see a larger difference. Study in acetonitrile recently showed, um, you know, or rather not recently, about 10 years ago had about the same results. But even, even for dynamics, if you look at how water dipoles sort of fluctuate near the interface, you will see a difference even at zero volts between constant charge and constant potential because the constant potential surface actually interacts with the water dipoles in a slightly different way than the constant charge method. And, and there are some um, really interesting computational methods that take advantage of that. Hmm. So these water dipoles at the interface, they would also cause local fluctuations on the charges on the electrode as well. So that would also be something that you could study from your constant potential uh, methods, right? Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah. So are they significantly different? So are these local fluctuations very significant if, if you observe the charges on every atom on the electrolyte? Um, yeah, so so there can there can be significant fluctuations. And and these days, um, at least in the LAMPS code. The, the constant potential method is not too difficult to add on so that, you know, you can always, um, you should always be able to run a short constant potential simulation and compare against whatever results you're getting from your constant charge method. Very, very recently, there has been quite a bit of study into um, what people call the nano or the dielectric constant of nano-confined water, which is that when you think of the dielectric constant of water, um, it is what it is because water molecules can sort of reorient themselves and shield ions from each other. But near an interface, there is some restriction there. Like a water molecule might prefer to lie flat on an interface instead of pointing in one direction or another. And because of that, the, the dielectric response of water is actually different near the interface. So that's a that's a really hot topic of study at the moment. And um, you know, some constant potential studies would be really interesting to see what what happens when you change sort of the, the constant potential response of the electrode uh, to the water that's near it. You talked about using constant potential methods in LAMPS code, which is quite easy to use it. If I'm not wrong, you also had some source code modifications in LAMPS to incorporate the constant potential method much efficiently. Can you talk to us about those modifications or the usefulness of those modifications? Yes, so we are we are quite proud of that because this is a this is an international collaboration actually. So I've I've been working very closely with the group of yeah. So Robert Meissner and then his uh, PhD students um, Ludwig and Camila and uh, who's recently joined us on the coding. And what what that has actually been is that we've um, there used to be a package um, that you had to compile separately from the code up until about 2018 or 2019. So you had to download it separately from GitHub and, and sort of get it installed um, sort of in a custom way almost. But starting 2021, our package called Electrode has actually been in the core of the LAMPS source code. So you can actually download the LAMPS, uh, the latest versions of LAMPS source code, and there will actually already be the Electrode package sort of included with it. So you just have to compile it or ask your or ask your cluster administrator to compile it in the usual way and just add on electrode as one of the packages during compiling. 
And um, we are we are very happy that we got this code. So Ludwig and his supervisor actually worked on a very significant um, optimization, which is to get the electrostatics calculation working with what we call PPPM or long range electrostatics. So uh, before that, that used to be the bottleneck in the earlier version of the code, but they've got it working with a long range code. And we've also streamlined the implementation so that you know basically it runs in a more optimized way. And, and that means that usually for a constant potential simulation, you should it should not take longer than two to three times um, a regular simulation uh, for the same system. So, you know, we're, we're quite proud of that achievement. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. <laughs> nice. So I'm a bit more curious. So as you talked about the anomalies of on the temperatures, basically due to constant charge uh, models, uh, you could see a temperature of around 10,000 Kelvin on ionic liquids. That's, I think that's what you talked about. So then why is it still acceptable to do simulations at constant charge when there are so many issues with that particular method itself? Sure. Um, I think, well, exposure is, I mean, one of the simplest explanations, basically, that there most, you know, not, not that many people have heard of a constant potential simulation. I mean, I, I hadn't heard about it until... Um, I joined uh, the group that I had been working with at the University of Queensland. So, you know, certainly simply people hearing about constant charge methods has been um, an issue. And then the other thing that's really interesting, I think on one hand, the the constant charge results are can actually be good enough in a lot of circumstances. So the paper I was talking about earlier, one of the one of the really important papers in the field that people should read if they're interested. Um, is a 2012 paper uh, by Celine Merlet and her um, you know, and the group that she was working with basically called Can We Model Supercapacitors as Constant Charge um, Electrodes or something like that. And the thing is that particular result where the, you know, where the ionic liquid heated right up when you use a constant charge, that was with a nanoporous supercapacitor where it's actually physically wrong for different parts of the supercapacitor, the electrode to have the same charge. Because what happens instead um, when we see in constant potential models is that the parts of the um, electrode that are nearest to the electrolyte have pretty strong charge induced on them. And the parts of the electrode that are further back in uh, don't have much charge induced on them. So in that case, the charge distribution for the constant charge model is actually physically wrong. So it's not surprising that the, the results are also completely wrong. Um, in a lot of circumstances, especially if you're using a flat electrode and you're not really changing the potential on it all that much, you can you can get acceptable results with constant charge methods. You can always check with a constant potential method simulation, but I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't say that all constant charge methods are simulations are wrong. The ones on flat electrodes are probably pretty close to the truth. Um, you know, certainly close enough that you can actually act on some of the, the predictions that are made. But certainly when you want more accuracy and you have a bit more computer time to spare, that's when a constant potential method is really useful. And also for nanoporous situations, which are becoming more and more common these days, um, as we try and use sort of nanoscale modification or nanoscale features or nanoscale voids and things like that to actually make to actually try and increase the surface area of our electrodes. So as more and more people try and simulate that kind of system, um, I'm sure that they'll, you know, we'll, we'll see that you actually need a constant potential style molecular dynamic simulation to get uh, reasonable results. 
yeah hmm. so every method has some limitations so do you think if there are any limitations with the constant potential methods as well uh, apart from the simulation time that it might take as compared to constant charge models yeah absolutely absolutely and and i think as someone who develops these models i think i do have to be responsible and say there are um, we still have a long way to go as a community actually the speed of it is not too diff- is not a big problem because like i was saying the cost of a, a constant potential model at most should be around you know you the your your time step should only take anywhere between one and a half to two times as long as it would have on a regular simulation if it's taking longer than that you probably have a problem i mean the the you know the the simulation may not have been set up very efficiently but so the 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 speed is uh, surprisingly not an issue but what is an issue in our community i think are a couple of things so firstly we we don't really have well i think we we need to standardize our models much better so at the moment there are quite a few different ways to set constant potential parameters the main ones being the gaussian width to to step back in a constant potential simulation we often model the the charges on each atom as kind of a gaussian um distribution or a gaussian cloud rather than a single point charge um to make the mathematics a bit easier um the width of that gaussian um does change some small aspects of the simulation and we don't really have a standard yet for how to determine what the correct gaussian width is from um you know something like a more basic dft calculation or density functional theory calculation and the other main issue that we have i think is that quite a few of our force field parameters so how the ions or water interact with the electrode those have been parameterized without the use of a constant potential charge on the electrodes so it would be very good and this is something that i definitely want to do in the next few years to to at least check that the parameters are reasonable when we apply them uh from a constant charge simulation into a constant potential simulation one of the very exciting developments in this area is that up until recently we didn't have a very good way to treat um what we call heteroatomic electrodes um it's a very big word but it just means that if you have an electrode which has different atoms so even something as simple as reduced graphene or graphene oxide which has both carbons and oxygens on it or something like a maxine which has different types of you know metals and carbons or something like a molybdenum disulfide or a or a transition metal dichal um you know dichal uh, tmd right a uh, dichalcogenide right so a tmd like molybdenum disulfide with different types of elements on it there isn't really an agreement on how to treat those because we need to include the electronegativity of the individual atoms into the electrode calculation um we are so you know me myself and a, a few collaborators from the US we do have a paper um in review about how to actually tackle that particular side of things based on quantum calculations so that part we are making quite a bit of progress on i think generally just making sure our force fields are correct you know when we go over to a a constant potential simulation that's something where i think as a community we have quite a lot of work left to do yeah yeah indeed because uh, force field parameterizations are quite challenging so you're basically saying that uh, e- even though we have these modifications on the lamps or the functions that are available on lamps for constant potential methods uh, we'll still we'll still need to do benchmarking on a specific system if we want to work on rather than just blindly taking it up and running it uh, for the system for the, for the system that we are interested in 
Yeah, absolutely. And and it's made more difficult by the fact that um, unlike with um, when you when you parameterize a force field for something that's just about simulation, like if you want to have a box of water, let's say, then you can you can tune your water force field to make sure that let's say it freezes at zero degrees Celsius or it boils at 100 degrees Celsius or it has a particular diffusivity. But when you want to parameterize the force field for water near, you know, on top of, let's say, a silver electrode, then you've got to study not just the bulk water system, but also in the lab, you have to construct a model like water-silver interface that is reasonably smooth and that has properties that you can really understand very well. And so I think on the experimental side, we, we don't really see, even for constant charge molecular dynamic simulations, we don't we don't really have that many, at least not that I'm aware, we don't have very many um, interdisciplinary studies where people have rigorously compared sort of what they see in their experiment to what they see um, in the molecular dynamics side of things. Um, although, you know, I, I, I must say that on the constant charge side, I'm not fully up to date with the literature. So maybe, you know, things have been done since then that I, um, that I haven't heard of yet. Yeah. Uh, I'm also very curious to understand briefly about the, these room temperature ionic liquid systems that you talked about in your work, where, so can, can you uh, briefly introduce us to the use of these room temperature ionic liquids as electrolyte and why they are of great interest these days? Yeah, so room temperature ionic liquids are are a very interesting um, new class. Well, they're not they're not new. I should I should take that back. So we have known about sort of ionic liquids uh, in various areas of chemistry for quite a while. Um, they are related to other things called um, deep eutectic solvents, and what they are um, is that if you think back to your chemistry one hundred and one, you're usually told that you know um, um, if you've got something that's held together by ionic interactions, it'll be a solid, right? Like salt at room temperature is a solid and you have to heat it up to, I think, 900 degrees or 1,000 degrees Celsius before it melts. But there are, there are compositions that you can make of cations and anions that stay um, liquid, even at sort of close to room temperature. Usually we say if it's up to about 400 kelvins or above, 400 kelvins, that kind of counts as room temperature, even though that's very hot, uh, you know, compared to actual room temperature. But but it's certainly not in the hundreds or 200 degree range when you start thinking about, you know, certain metals or metal compositions melting, you know. So um, a room temperature ionic liquid, what's really interesting about them is that they are highly conductive and they are also really, they have a lot of potential for green chemistry and again, I'm not an expert on the chemistry side of things, but from what I'm aware, they've got very low vapor pressure, um, and yet they are pretty good solvents for some chemical reactions. So this is really useful because organic solvents, um, you know, that are traditionally used in organic chemistry, um, are quite volatile, and there's a risk of things like pollution or workplace exposure that you know makes these chemicals less safe to work with. And an ionic liquid has a very low vapor pressure, which means that it's not very volatile and won't really um, cause a lot of, you know, has less potential to cause harm that way. And also the really interesting thing about ionic liquids is that you've got a cation and you've got an anion. And in theory, you can actually, you know, you can you can put any cation with any anion and get a new ionic liquid of a different uh, composition. So there's a wide range of ways that you could tune an ionic liquid simply by changing 
which cation or which anion you use. And even within that, there are different families of uh, cations and anions. So for example, um, you know, with the anions, there are some of these sort of weakly associating ones like um, PF6 or you know, BF4 that are almost spherical. And then you've got ones that are slightly more asymmetric like um, NTF2. And then you've got some that are really sort of highly asymmetric and you've also got highly asymmetric cations. And when, when you've got the ones that sort of look almost more like rods, you know, what happens is that a lot of these can have charged regions and neutral regions that if you mix them in the correct proportion will give you phase separation. And then that's when you start getting some really interesting sort of physical chemistry of liquids that you can tune your ionic liquid um, to basically give you the properties that you want. Um, essentially, that's the dream. The downside of some of these is that uh, fluorine is involved. Um, we don't really like it when fluorine is involved because there's always a risk of you know um, terrible things being released if the if the mixture gets heated up too much. But you know it's a very exciting and interesting area of chemistry. Yeah. Hmm. Thank you. Thank you for explaining us about uh, this this new field as well. To finish off with, uh, what advice would you like to give on better modeling techniques of of, a, of an electrode electrolyte interface in general? I think just um, just giving it a try is the first thing. That's always you know I think we we certainly need more people trying out these methods and having and having a go. I think at the moment what what we really need in in sort of for people who are interested in pushing the method further is we desperately need sort of validation better validation studies that go beyond sort of is it physically correct are the numbers is the mathematics correct to you know how how good are our parameters actually describing um what's happening especially compared to something like a quantum calculation or compared to an experiment when it comes to running a, a constant potential simulation, uh, from, from the code side of things, it's not too difficult. In LAMPS especially, you just need to make sure that your, your package has been compiled with the electrode package, and then you just put a few lines in and the simulation runs. Definitely some of the usual, you know, all the usual molecular dynamics rules apply. Like you need to make sure that your simulation runs for long enough, that you get good statistics. Um, you need to start from a few different initial conditions. You need to ideally have um, sort of comparisons between similar simulations so that you have a good qualitative trend. So like I was saying earlier, if you compare dilute salt water and concentrated salt water, you should see the correct trend to compare to experiment, even if quantitatively the numbers, the exact numbers might be a bit off. And the other last piece of advice that sort of applies very specifically to these constant potential simulation systems is that the electrostatic accuracy of your simulation needs to be quite high. So, I mean, this is a bit of jargon for people who are running these simulations, but typically many simulations in, in this area are run with sort of a, a relative accuracy of something like 10 to the power of minus four. And really you need at least 10 to the power of minus five and ideally minus six or even minus seven. That's actually where um, constant potential simulations can be a bit more expensive. Um, I would argue that you you need to have that accuracy even for constant charge simulations as well. But that's another podcast. And then and then um, sort of added to that, it is also when you write a paper about constant potential simulations, you need to specify that same number. Um, you know, sort of the accuracy that you have used in your calculation, um, basically because that's what is needed for other people 
to be able to repeat it. Yes, so so that's that's kind of my advice specifically for this area. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much, Sean. We just enjoyed talking to you on, uh, on and understanding the constant potential methods. Thank you very much.